Though still a relative newcomer to the cinematic mainstream, Yorgos Lanthimos has already proved himself to be a filmmaker of wild originality and imagination. Following his breakthrough feature, Dogtooth, which tells the story of children completely cut off from the outside world by their parents, he brought us The Lobster, a surreal tale about people who are turned into animals if they fail to find love. His latest offering is psychological revenge thriller, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Starring Barry Keown, Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman, it tells the story of a family forced into making a torturous decision, having seemingly been cursed. Unsettling, unpredictable and gripping, it landed the Best Screenplay Award at this year's Cannes Film Festival. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, the weekly podcast about screen music. Though Yorgos hasn't worked with a composer on any of his films, the classical pieces he uses in The Lobster and Deer often serve a similar purpose. For example, this is a string quartet from the former which effectively scores a quarrel between two of the characters. The film also features the work of Beethoven, Stravinsky, Strauss and Britten. The Killing of a Sacred Deer, meanwhile, has a much more experimental musical palette, full of agitated strings and alarming tonal shifts. You'll hear plenty of examples of what I'm talking about throughout the course of our conversation. But we begin with something no less ominous, yet far more traditional in the shape of Stabat Mater, which opens the film and gives fair warning of the shape of things to come. First of all, Yorgos, welcome to Soundtrack and congratulations on The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I always get very excited when I hear that you have a new film coming out because I never know what to expect and I hope you take that as a huge compliment because you don't really get surprised in the cinema that often. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to ask you if there is a relationship between that film and music and where and if music has a part within the film. My relationship with music in film has started only in my last couple of films in the traditional sense. I always tried to use music in my earlier films but I could never achieve it. Whenever I tried to use music as a soundtrack in the traditional sense, I felt like it always limited the scenes. You know, it just said the same thing that the scene says, or, you know, somehow it constricted the, the connotation that a scene could have without the specific music. In general, I thought always that the scenes in the film just felt better without music. Yeah. But then, when I made The Lobster, it was the first time that I felt, because of the various elements and the very particular tone, that I could find a way that I could use music as something that comes into the equation. Because of this chemical reaction of the different elements, it creates this other tone. It's almost like oil and water exactly, going yeah. together. So that continued on to the killing of a sacred deer.
Can we talk a little bit in depth about the lobster and some of the particular scenes? If I can remember. Uh, yeah. Well, let me try and remind you. The dance scene, for example. So yeah. the music is in the narrative of that, specifically where you have this band, which includes the wonderful Olivia as one of the singers in the band, yeah. singing Something's Gotta Hold My Heart. Yes. Something's gotta hold up my heart Leaving my soul and my senses apart have you ever danced with anybody? Sorry? Have you ever danced with anybody? Yes. What sort of dancing did you do? Just depends on the music. Do you need to sit down? No, no, no. I'm getting ready to dance. Oh. Can I sit here? Sorry. Can I sit here? Of course. Let me introduce you to my best friend. That woman you were talking to has no feelings whatsoever. She feels nothing at all. She's the best hunter in the hotel. Silent and very fast. She's the women's record holder. 192 captives. Changing the grey, changing the blue, scarlet for me, scarlet for you. love as well how that performance is intercut with the conversations that are going on with all the characters. Have you ever danced with somebody? It's just one of those lovely, it's almost like a child talking, you know, in terms yeah. of being at school dance, kind of, have you ever danced with anyone? That kind of thing. Yeah. Some beautiful moments in that scene. But picking that particular track, did you write that into the script or at what point did you decide that that was the right piece of music that you wanted to use? Yeah. We didn't write it into the script, but uh, it was specified, obviously, that it was a duet. So we just researched a lot of duets, and that's just an instinctive thing when you end up deciding, okay, this is what it's going to be. You just try and imagine it with the characters and the people that you've chosen to be in the film. And, and the lyrics? The lyrics as well. You Maybe sometimes you try to not have too much meaning in them, and people start seeing too much into it, and then... Yeah. You know, they get confused in, in all the wrong ways. But So you just try to keep a balance between everything. Eventually, you just feel it's right. I don't know if there's like a, you know, a justification for it, which is very intellectual. You know, with the music, a lot of it is just instinctive. Yeah. Also, with the rest of my work, I, I do a lot of it instinctively anyway. Music even more so. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know why exactly. It just felt funny and... and <laughs> and moving at the same time and imagining that we would have an opera singer you know singing part of it and how that would sound and maybe we did a couple of auditions with a singer and heard a couple of different songs 
how they would sound with that kind of voice yeah. and maybe made that decision based on that as well. Because, you know, some things you just have to witness them. In your head you can hear it with a recording, but when it's done live as well, it's completely different. Yeah. And Olivia as well. I love that moment as well when they just, the little dance that they yeah, do. the little dance that they do. <laughs> but it's all those subtleties and those tiny little things that just, they make you laugh. There's so many brilliant moments. The hand signals scene as well. Yeah. <laughs> How did you come to, to decide on what you would use for that? Um... Because you have all these amazing classical composers that, yeah. that come in and out. I think that, you know, that quartet by Beethoven, that used to be a thing that I've discovered actually for many, many years. And I, it, it is, it's, you know, one of my, not anymore, I can't <laughs> listen to it anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> That's the thing, after yeah. you use the music uh, in a film, then it's, you know, it's so connected to that, that you can't. But I, it used to be one of my favorite quartets. And I found it so moving and so um, romantic and even almost corny, but, you know, I, I just loved it. had it in mind trying to find something that would juxtapose the voiceover but also finding a very emotional romantic music to juxtapose with the voice and then the kind of awkward funny scenes that you visually depict I just felt that it was you know finally the moment for me to use this piece of music which was one of my favorites and I end up almost making fun of it a little bit and fun of myself for liking it so much um, now you've ruined it <laughs> yeah and I've now ruined it you know I can't listen to it anymore but yeah that's how I you know that's how I chose this piece of music it's repeated throughout the film and it's like a lighthouse yeah, light like a beacon <laughs> like a beacon in the film we've developed a code so that we can communicate with each each other, even in front of the others, without them knowing what we are saying. When we turn our heads to the left, it means, I love you more than anything in the world. And when we turn our heads to the right, it means, watch out, we're in danger. We had to be very careful in the beginning not to mix up, I love you more than anything in the world, with, watch out, we're in danger. When we raise our left arm, it means, I want to dance in your arms. When we make a fist and put it behind our backs, it means, let's fuck. The code grew and grew as time went by, and within a few weeks, 
We could talk about almost anything without even opening our mouths. Can we talk about Nick Cave? Kylie Minogue? <laughs> Forgot about that. You forgot about Nick Cave? Well, I love Nick Cave as well. <laughs> yeah. So it was a good opportunity. <laughs> Kill two birds with one stone, Again. so to speak. They call me the wild rose. But my name was Eliza Tate. Why they call me I do not know. First day I saw her, I knew she was the one. She stared in my eyes and smiled. For her lips were the color of the roses that grew down the river, all bloody and wild. When he knocked on my door and entered the room, my trembling subsided in his sure embrace. He would be my first man. And with a careful hand He wiped out the tears That ran down my face They call me the wild rose But my name was Eliza Day Why they call me that I do not know For my name was Eliza Another duet. <laughs> so it was part of the research of the duets. Was it? Yeah, because it's a uh, you know Kylie Minogue uh, yeah. in the cave. Another duet. I'd love to have seen the opera singer <laughs> go for that on the dance scene as well. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we tried that for that scene, but um, yeah, it felt right for mm. the romantic relationship between Colin and David is yeah. his name in the film and uh, and short-sighted woman is the description of the of Rachel's, of the, of Rachel's character, character. <laughs> um, but yeah and it was uh, it was kind of funny when he sings it on his own and there was those little bunnies there which is also a connotation between the music video that they had done yeah. which was not intentional but I you know I when I saw it I went like oh this also looks like a music video a little bit for the first time I saw her I knew she was the one she stared in my eyes and smiled And her lips were the color of roses That grew down the river all bloody and wild And I don't know if this has got a relationship to your experience in working in music videos as well as collaborating with choreographers and things like that. For The Lobster in particular, the way that you use all this classical music so perfectly that it almost kind of contradicts sometimes with an emotion or what's going yeah. on. It feels like your interpretation of the music has almost written another script. Well, I mean, I think it, it does rely a lot on juxtaposition and contradiction because, again, I just find it when the music does the same thing as the rest of the elements do, I mean, there's no, there's no point. It's telling you how it to feel, And it's isn't it? telling you how to feel and it's very obvious yeah. and it's annoying uh, <laughs> for intelligent people at least. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what I figured out, and it's not like great signs or anything, but I figured out that I can find, you know, music that works, you know, as a contradiction or juxtaposition or even just um, 
accents the scene but in an over the top way that yeah. kind of turns around to itself and then it becomes maybe funny because it's so melodramatic and so over the top and so loud that it takes you to a different place mm -hmm. than what it would do if you used it in a different way. Were you looking at a photograph while you were masturbating? Yes. What did the photograph show? A naked woman on a horse in the country. If I were in your shoes, I would not be ogling the naked woman, but the horse. I'm sure that horse was once a weak and cowardly man, just like you. The way I, I, I figure out what kind of music to use is usually at a later stage. I mean, I have a vague idea in the beginning, but I, I spend a lot of time while we're editing in researching music and listening to music and trying it on scenes or, or you know, not even edited scenes like rushes. I, I, I use rushes and I play music on top of them and just see what kind of feeling it creates. So that, yeah, I spend a lot of time while editing, figuring things out. And I think that's also, that kind of approach is one of the reasons that I haven't managed to work with a composer to write original music for my films yet. But I love that you haven't done that. Yeah. Well, it's, I really, mean, it's, it's, it's really unique. It's really unusual. Yeah. It's really interesting if I manage yeah. to do that as well, though. <laughs> <laughs> no rush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but because, I, because of that process and, you know, by trying things and discovering things and seeing that they work, you know, when you find something, then it's really hard to ask someone, okay, I figured it out. Now you do something better than <laughs> yeah. what I just did. And you also get used to it and it works. And, you know, it's really hard to accept something different after you found something that you feel like after a lot of research it really you know captures the exact tone that will be beneficial to to the film or the scene and the existing pieces of music you use often sound in this film the killing of a sacred deer like score the um yana rapture for example yes <laughs>
having said that, I'd love to somehow find an, a, a similar way of you know writing original music for one of my films but um, maybe it will happen maybe it won't <laughs> but there are elements where I think sometimes that films can still be musical without there being music and that's down to so many things and yeah. particularly your sound designer Johnny Bourne who's phenomenal and I think that the work that he does really creates almost what music does in other people's films I think I really, I, I, I really like that you say that because at the same time it's quite subtle. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we do, I mean, it's, it's seemingly just uh, rough and realistic, and I, I do like that approach. But you know, it's the little details and the subtle changes in things that, you know, although it could be sounds that were there at the moment and they were re- recorded on the spot, they're not really, and they're quite controlled. Yeah, uh, and they feel natural, and you know they they are, but they they weren't there necessarily on the day. So you know Johnny does a lot of work. You know he records stuff on his own whenever. I mean he couldn't do much on the on the deer because he wasn't. Uh, in, we shot it in the U.S. and he's he's based here. But mm. whenever we do, and he did that on the lobster, he came to Ireland and he likes to record a lot of you know sounds on his own and work a lot while we're even editing you know to come out to build a library of sounds for every individual film for instance now he's out recording horses because i just finished filming this period film and he's your favorite yeah so he's he's out recording horses you know although we did record horses while we were filming but he has to record them in the particular way that he wants to record them so that they work i have this crazy image in my head now of him and he's kind of wellies in a big coat with loads of equipment just hanging off him, walking about, just recording stuff. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure he is exactly <laughs> like that. So, yeah, he's, 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 he's an amazing sound designer, and I love the fact that what we do is subtle but effective yeah. uh, at the same time. Johnny did contribute an original composition to this film as well, which is this intense wall of sound that captures the suspense of the film perfectly. Yeah. I was re-watching Dogtooth and there's some deleted scenes as well that I found that have some music. Oh, yeah, with some music yeah, and with singing. Yeah, with some music yeah. and singing, yeah. I love the scene of the dad in the bedroom. And because as well, I love with your filmmaking how you give everything time to breathe. You know, there's no rush. It's wonderful. And so in that moment where he, he stops and he goes to leave and then he comes back, no, I've got a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> and he kind of reprises it as well. Yeah, I love that scene. That's why, I mean, I rarely include deleted scenes because you know when once you've scrapped them i just feel like you know they shouldn't be part, part of it yeah some of them you've scrapped also because they don't really work so you don't want to share it with the world yeah but these two scenes well one was basically an alternative version of a scene that exists in the film so yeah the kids singing Fly in the, the yeah in an incomprehensible language because obviously they didn't know what english was and you know their father was um, passing these words as as a completely different meaning so we had this version 
which is in the film the dad explaining what the song says but he, we also filmed a version of the kids singing these incomprehensible lines that we actually wrote down so they could all of them could say the same things yeah so we tried to come up with how they would hear these the actual english words in their own heads it's so funny so we kind of wrote down lyrics <laughs> um and yeah they learned it and then they sang it and it was quite a funny scene so i just thought that it it, it was fun to share it Flamingo de mu let me play more in the stars in my sea was screaming like a jubilee in other words oh my And then the scene with the dad singing on its own, you know, this is one of uh, an old Greek song, which I, I also really love. It's such a delicate balance. You know, it's beautiful, but it's also kind of pathetic and kind of funny and how he does it and how he goes away and comes back. It's, I think it's so fragile, that whole moment, which we cut out, I guess, because of, you know, it just felt unnecessary at that point in the film yeah. to include that. But it was a precious moment that we captured on film, and you know it stands on its own. It's so. like a little short. Almost. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's why we included that uh, as well. Να ξέρεις πόσο σε θυμάμαι, να ξέρεις πόσο σ' αγαπώ, όπου βρεθώ και όπου να με, για σένα ναι. Καρδιόχτυπο Γλυκά μου μάτια Αγαπημένα Μακριά από σένα Πώς να χαρώ Γλυκά μου μάτια Αγαπημένα Ίσως μια μέρα Σας ξαναδώ Σας ξαναδώ Can we 
talk a little bit about shorts and music videos though as well because Identicate, yeah. the Radiohead short that you made, how did that come about and was it purely you were just asked to interpret the music in your way? Yeah, I mean it was a very straightforward thing. They just told me that they're asking a few filmmakers to do these really short snippets for their music and I, you know, I love Radiohead and I said, of course, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great honor. So, and they, they, they just let, you know, left you completely free to do whatever it is that you wanted. You know, it was a little production. There wasn't like any budget or anything. So we just try to come up with something relatively simple, but you don't want it to be too simple because you're doing something for Radiohead and, you know, you just <laughs> have to do something amazing to make justice for their music. No pressure. Sweet-faced ones with nothing left inside same time I mean they didn't really expect that I think because they said like do 30 seconds you know with mm -hmm. very little money it's just so you see that they're not expecting you to do anything but I think all filmmakers went you know way beyond their we spoke to Ben Wheatley about it as yeah. well because he was another one who was involved and he said he thinks it's the most pressure he's felt for any yeah. job ever yeah exactly <laughs> so you go like no I have to do something and it doesn't matter we don't have any money we'll figure it out and we'll have people it felt like when I was making films in Greece really because I had to convince people to work for free and try and figure it out how I can do this without much money and do it the way we wanted I, was, I shot on film and it's, it's, it's crazy just feel pressured <laughs> to do something worthwhile. So it was an honor to be asked to do it. You're an Isco Disco, is that how I say it? We're an Isco Disco, yeah. What yeah, do you it's a short film I yeah. did like many years ago. I don't even, yeah. Remember the last time you watched it? <sighs> no, I haven't. I don't even have it. I mean, sometimes people go like, oh, could we watch that? I go like, I don't really have it. I mean, I don't know. It's like a different lifetime. Yeah, but, you know, music was part of, I guess, when you started. I haven't seen any, but I'm really intrigued by the collaborations that you did with Greek choreographers and, and create and dance videos as well yeah. for them. Well, I mean, those, like, they're not extremely interesting I mean there was like little things where we were very young and yeah. you know we just filmed stuff and but they're all um, part of your journey yes no I mean they have informed me I mean the the work itself is not interesting but the the experience yeah. and the, what I learned from it and yeah I worked a lot alongside very talented people and um, maybe it has to do something with my approach in filmmaking in general and working with actors uh, and I worked also in the theater 
not a lot, but I, I I've done like four plays in the theater, which mm. was at some point it was more than my films uh, until recently. I think now it just <laughs> overtook <laughs> the the theater <laughs> with filmmaking, which wasn't a plan, but I I just got offered to do a play like a long time ago, and I thought it would be an interesting experience. It would inform my way of figuring out my way of working with actors and that was very true of it yeah i i approach that and i i approach working with actors even in films when we're rehearsing very physically mm -hmm. uh, and that might have something to do with my initial journey in working with choreographers and dance i find it a much more true way of approaching things the physical aspect of it body language and whatever comes with it so yeah it was it was it was very informative for me those years mm. it's weird because I wanted to the last thing I wanted to ask you about was about how you would describe the way that you work with your actors because I think you get the best out of your actors and the performances and young Barry in this yeah. in particular he's terrifying <laughs> he's incredible. Yeah. but incredible and you always get the best out of Colin. I just think you give him the opportunity to show his capabilities as an actor I just I think he's great he's he um, yeah I wonder if you know how you work with your actors or if it is instinctive or, <laughs> or if you have a way of, um, to describe it. I think I have found my ways, but a lot of it has to do with choosing the right people for it. Yeah. I do try to take a lot of care around that and make sure that I feel comfortable with uh, casting the right people. Sometimes it means doing a lot of, um, you know, like auditions or, you know, screen tests yeah. or things like that. Or... You know, if someone has a you know huge body of work like Colin did or Nicole did, I try to look a lot of that, but try to imagine them in my world and how that would work in in my way of working. Uh, and I do watch a lot of interviews as well and YouTube clips and stuff like that, so I can just get an, another sense of them, not just acting, but yeah. how they are in different you know situations not that it is real again when you're doing an interview but it's a different mode than acting so i just try to choose right and then I, you know as we discussed before it's a lot of it is there's no intellectualizing the parts or the script or the film or what we're doing and why we're doing it a lot of it is just physical trying different things when it feels right it feels right when it doesn't we change it around we try it in a different way I think I just try and create this atmosphere that, you know, you don't have to think about it too much, just do it, just say the lines, do the action. When it feels right, I'll tell you. When it doesn't, I'll tell you as well. I won't tell you why, but just keep doing it, and at some point it will become what it needs to be to become. A lot of it is also ingrained, I think, in the, in the writing. There's yeah. a particular tone in the writing, so that helps a lot and you do feel it when something comes out wrong. Can I tell you a secret? Don't tell her I told you. I think she, I think she likes you. I mean, she's attracted to you, but she says that's not true, but it is, I'm sure. And to be honest, I think you're perfect for each other. You'd make a great couple. She's got a great body. You've seen it for yourself. She lost weight and she's a really great figure. Your mother is very beautiful, but the idea that she and I could ever be together is ludicrous. Let me remind you I'm a married man. And I love my wife very much and my kids, and that we are very happy together. And for your information, 
You're absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And they're, you know, very intelligent actors, very talented, and they get it. And the actors that I work with I always make sure that they are aware of my work, that they've seen at least one of my films in order for them to really know what they're getting into and if they're really interested in working with me. So, you know, all of these elements make it easier and you don't really have to explain to anyone what it is you're trying to do. Yeah. Because as soon as I feel you ruin it, as soon as you start explaining, it I becomes, yeah, I want that, this yeah. and you should do this because of that, then it just becomes so self-conscious and so obvious that, you know, it's not useful anymore. Yeah. And it's, you know, it doesn't work. I'm very excited about The Favourite. He kind of reunited with Olivia and Rachel, and we've got Emma Stone in there as well, who I'm a huge fan of, and I'm just, I'm so intrigued about what the performance that you've got out of her, because <laughs> yeah. that marriage of you two, I imagine, is going to be great. Yeah, well, we'll see. We're still <laughs> working on it. <laughs> um, no, I mean, they're, they're, I was very fortunate to work with all three of them, the two of them again, and with Emma for the first time. It was, you know, my dream cast, and... I waited for it and it came together and I'm really, you know, excited to see what will come out of it. In the meantime, people can just relish watching Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yorgos, thank you for your time. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Positively medieval soundtrack to The Killing of a Sacred Deer, that's Rejoice and He Returned to His Own Abode by Ole Krizia and Torleif Tadin, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Yorgos Lanthimos. My huge thanks to Yorgos for taking the time to talk to us. The Killing of a Sacred Deer is on general release now with that haunting soundtrack available via our friends at Editions Milan. You can find a Spotify playlist for the tracks featured in this episode via edithbowman.com which is also the place to subscribe to the podcast. iTunes works just as well if you prefer. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please keep spreading the word if you like what you hear. This coming Saturday, the 11th of November, we host our first live soundtracking at the BFI with composer Lauren Balf. Hopefully, we'll see some of you there. Next week, we're in the company of the fantastic Paul McGuigan talking about his new film, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.